Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it's time for another female first, which means that we are once again joined by the wonderful, fabulous, great friend of ours, Eves. Hi, Yay. Eves. Hi. Hi again. It's me again. <laughs> <laughs> what an introduction. Hi yes. again. Hi again. Yep, it's me again. <laughs> well, this is our first recording of 2022, correct? Together. Yeah. That feels right. Yeah. That sounds right. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, I know. Time is already blurring together this year. <laughs> but how was your your end of year, New Year's Eve? It was good. It was pretty uneventful. I didn't really do anything. I think I slept. Through, did I, No, I think I was up at midnight. And I think I went to sleep right at midnight on New Year's <laughs> yeah. Eve. I was like, it's time to go to sleep. Um, <laughs> so I was surprised I even made it to midnight, but yeah, beyond the actual day, I am happy it's a new year. Um, I'm trying for this to be one of those years where, of course, it's a good time to reflect on the past and the future and all of those things, but also trying to be less serious about that and understand that it's something that can happen all year long as well. So I will say things are different and they're the same. <laughs> Yes, that feels about right for the last four years. Different, yeah. but the same. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because my New Year's resolution is to take better care of myself. And I have like specifics about it. Mm-hmm. But on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, I stayed up until 5 a.m. playing a video game. I played like oh. 10 times. <laughs> so- I'm I'm having like a 55% success rate right now, I think. On the game, you mean? Oh, no, I'm having 100% success rate on this. No, no, (laughs) on my resolution. It's taking you a while to go to a low number. I don't don't want to say anything, but, you know. (laughs) Eves, with the shade. She's so nice about it. (laughs) You're like, oh, on the game that you played four times? (laughs) Ten times. (laughs) No, no shame. I'm terrible at games. I'm just messing with you. I'm terrible at video games. All good, all good. Well... For this one, I know we've talked before about art and sculpture, but my question to the group is, what was your favorite, like, writing discounted, Mm -hmm. what was your favorite form of, I guess, visual art that you've participated in? Do you you mean things that I've I've myself created or just, like, in terms of an observer? I was asking for what you yourself has created, but now I want to know both. No, it's writing. (laughs) Writing is like, I mean, it's not a visual art technically per se. I haven't really dabbled in any of the visual arts, painting, sculpture, drawing, none of those. But um, I would say, that's a good question. I would say probably painting. And I would say that because that is the first thing that comes into my mind based on the emotional, like visceral emotional reactions that I've had when I'm in spaces mm-hmm. with paintings. Um, I think that I'm, I am more drawn to and have stronger emotional reactions through viewing paintings. But I've also, I mean, I've also had pretty strong reactions to other things as well, like video and sculpture. Yeah. But yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think um, in one of these past female firsts, we talked about this, but 
I, the lowest grade I ever got was in art in high school. Um, Well, in college, I got a lower grade in something else. But in high school, up until then, (laughs) that was my lowest grade. And everything I did, the teacher hated. I was thinking about this the other night. She hated every single thing that I did. (laughs) (laughs) But I did, like, in terms of creation, I really liked... We did this project once where you made uh, a portrait of somebody out of materials that you would find. And I actually really enjoyed that because it was very textural and and to kind of hunt down these items and think about them in a different way of how they could reflect. Because I was trying to create somebody in a sunset, so I had to find all those kind of swaths of colors, but in these other items. Mm -hmm. So I really, really enjoyed that. And I think I'm with you with when I think about the art that's moved me the most, paintings is probably visually mm-hmm. uh, and visual arts, the one that has done it. But I like that you brought up video because that's true. And I feel yeah. like that gets left out of the conversation a lot. Uh, yeah. And I have seen some just really moving video art. Yeah. But there's space. Like I'm a, I love sculpture as well. And I do, I enjoyed sculpting and I used to make a lot of pottery. I just was never very good at it, but I did enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. What about you, Samantha? So I am not good at art in general. That is not my forte. The only good thing I could do, I think I've told you about this, is one time I got really into drawing penguins. No reason. I just did it. And a good friend of mine and I would make puns out of all these penguins. Mm -hmm. That was my favorite thing to do because it was just like a little circle, a little pointy beak. End of story. And uh, for some reason, I really thought I was doing something with that. Guess what? I wasn't. However... (laughs) I do love art in itself. And yeah, I'm with you. When I get to go to a good exhibit and it really flows and it just like speaks to you, there are moments that I'm like, oh, wow. And of course, I love deep colors. So I'm one of those that did fall into the Monet trap. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm digging these colors. And mm-hmm. as like I was wa- looking at his stuff and like finding his history, I was like, okay, yeah, I could definitely tell he was going blind. I still love it because he's still with us so much better than I could ever do in it myself in any way, like fully Mm. there. So all of those things. But I do love also finding the fascinating histories behind the different artists. They do make me very happy. I think that's just in general for like authors too, which I, yes, I believe that's art, but I know we're not like counting that for this moment. But yeah, for me, like the cheesy experiences that have been happening where you're really immersed in it, everybody's kind of been like, oh, what is this? But like, I really enjoyed that because for a minute you do really think, that you're in the middle of it, and it feels like you're part of that art for just a second. Of course, yeah. it's, again, cheesy effects, and I get why people are like, no, this is awful, and it's so, like, it's ruining art. But I love that experience to be immersed in it to that point of, like, seeing it in depth and feeling mm-hmm. it almost, like, move through you. Yeah. I will say that I also really love prints. Like, I love works on paper. Yeah. I love works on paper, and I also love book art. I, I like, yes. I fall for book art. I think it's so wonderful. It's just, and then and it just merges, you know, mm-hmm. language, visual language, yeah. um, and the actual form of the book, even though it doesn't always have to look like a, a, a typical book that we would read. But mm-hmm. yeah, I love book art as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I love comics. Uh, I was yeah. gonna say. Comics, and I love film. Like, I'm a huge movie person, and there's oh, yeah. definitely, <laughs> but also, um, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just so much more we could include. Yeah, it's so much. It's so expansive. (laughs) Visual art is expansive. It is. Yeah. Oh, 
Wow. My mind, my mind is just expanding yeah. even more. <laughs> but also photography. That's what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of photography books for Christmas, actually. And beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we like we like art is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I think, I think, art I think everybody listening probably knows that by this point. Um, yes. <laughs> considering we're podcasters, considering I bring artists all the time and they know that we write and, <laughs> and are involved in the arts in so many different ways. Yes, yes. But also, yeah, I do miss it, Samantha. I really, and I know we talked about that in a past episode too. I miss going to exhibits and museums and stuff. Right. So with all of that, who did you bring for us to talk about today, Eves? Today, we're going to talk about Mary Edmonia Lewis. So I was kind of hesitant to bring her because... You know, I know that there's a lot out there on her. Not like that's a qualification for not bringing somebody on the show. Like there is already a lot of information that exists because, of course, just because there's so much information about her and she's really popped back up over the last decade. Like a lot of people have been talking about her, her works that have been found in her place in the legacy of artists in the United States and in the world internationally as well. But I think she's still a person who's so worthy of talking about and I think we've also, we might have brought her name up in the Mita Vote Warwick Fuller episode. She was a sculptor as well. So I feel like maybe we mentioned her in there because I feel like I remember her name coming up then. But even if we didn't, just, you know, that she had, Edmonia Lewis herself had a bunch of her own inspirations and also inspired people later who worked in the field. So in terms of her first, she was the first woman of... Black American and Native American heritage to achieve international fame as a sculptor. And yeah, she just had this huge mythology around her that was built up and partially she built up a lot of that on her own. And then there was a lot of mythologizing that happened in the press and the people who wrote about her. Yeah, so we'll get into some of that later. Yeah, I feel like that's a theme in a lot of these is the mm-hmm. kind of creating of the story or the myth behind this person and how they were or were not involved, which I kind of appreciate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As I was like researching her, the song Yankee Doodle Dandy was going through my head, like over (laughs) and over the phrase born on the 4th of July was just like going through and through my head because I was thinking about how she said she was born on the 4th of July. And that was a running theme for a lot of people, they, if they didn't know their birth date, they would just say that they were born on the 4th of July. So that was just, like, for some reason, <laughs> I'm refrain in my head. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I, that's rough, Eves. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's rough. But yeah, there is a bunch of conflicting information about her early life, which is also a running theme. But Mm -hmm. she's said to have embellished a lot of things and changed them over time. But like I said, one of those things was that the date that they get, July 4th, 1844. So that year wasn't the only year that she ever said that she was born and other places say she was born. But it is kind of the consensus year that it's gone with. It's the one that's on her gravestone. And that number is based on her passport application which apparently also said that she was four feet tall. So when people described her, they said she was short, but on her passport application said she was four feet tall. But um, yeah, so she got on her application and said that she was born on or around July 4th, 1844. And she was born in Greenbush, New York. 
So there are different birth dates, death dates for her mother, and other dates recorded in her personal history that you'll find. Yeah, I mean, as we've spoken about before, this is digging into the past where the records can be murky if they were kept at all. It can be so, so Mm -hmm. difficult and tricky. I find it interesting that that passport would say on or around. (laughs) It could have kind of like a... (laughs) On or around? On or somewhere in there. In her heritage, her father was Black, and he was from the West Indies, and her mother was Ojibwe and born in Canada. So she claimed that her mother, Catherine, was a quote-unquote full-blooded Indian, but Catherine's father was a Black man, and her mother had Black and Ojibwe parents. So her heritage, Ammonia's mother's heritage, was mixed as well. Her parents died when she was young, But she did have a brother named Samuel. And according to Edmonia, they both had Native American names as well. His was Sunshine. And Edmonia's, she said that her name was Wildfire. But after she lost her parents, she went to live with her aunts elsewhere in New York. And her brother soon left for California. But he did send money back to her for her education and would continue to support her throughout her educational years, which is obviously something that helps anybody a lot. And it did for her um, that he was invested in her education. So in New York, she went to a Baptist abolitionist school and then she went to Oberlin College in Ohio, which she attended from 1859 to 1863. So while she was there, she boarded with the Reverend John Keep, and he was a member of the Board of Trustees and an abolitionist. Throughout her life, she was connected to a lot of abolitionists. She stayed in places where a lot of abolitionists were located, and she got a lot of financial support from them, encouragement from them, press from abolitionists and things like that. Oberlin College was known for being associated with the movement, and it was known for admitting Black people and women At the same time, there was a young ladies department that was split off from the rest of the college in which Lewis was enrolled. And so there was still this confinement to women's roles ideologically at the college. It was said that the training that they got there would help them in teaching and quote unquote duties of the sphere. So it wasn't so simple. It's just like, oh, there's this college with this huge reputation of being progressive and being all about abolitionism. At the same time, this was still that period in the United States and surrounding the college and in the college itself were still people who didn't rock with this whole idea of uh, co-education and the reputation that it had. Um, There were plenty of people in the area who were still anti-Black, who were still anti-abolitionist, and who were still anti-anybody stirring the pot, essentially, Um, like really sticking to these moral codes, um, according to what they view of morality. Oof, young ladies. I don't know, there's something about having the young in front of it, too. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. But I mean, I know I've told this story on the show before. I was in high school. I still had to go to home ec, and it was for girls at the high school. We still had to do that. <laughs> and then I went to a technical school that was all men until fairly recently. And some of the bathrooms still just had a sign with women 
taped over it because they didn't have any <laughs> women's bathrooms. They hadn't bothered to like do any, do any better than that since then. Yeah. Yeah. So it's weird. So many things we talk about, it's weird like how far we've come, but also so much of this legacy still we're still dealing with. Yeah, for sure. It's, that's also a running theme. Mm-hmm. She, so she, when she mm-hmm. was there, she still took classes like algebra, geometry, and composition, and she took art classes. So she didn't learn how to draw while she was there, but she did run into troubles while she was at the college. So in uh, 1862 incident, she served two women who she was boarding with, two white women specifically who she was boarding with, mulled wine, and then they went out, they went to you know, go ha- go on a sleigh ride or something like that. And they accused her of poisoning them with Spanish fly, which was a substance that has been considered an aphrodisiac in the past. And But they claimed that she poisoned them. And after that, she was attacked, ammonia was attacked and beaten. Not long after that, she was arrested, but her trial was delayed which when it did happen, it lasted for about six days from the end of February to the beginning of March. So she did still have supporters, even though there were clearly people who didn't rock with her. And Keeps for One was one of her supporters and her attorney also, John Mercer Langston, who helped her win the trial. But at the same time, she was later accused of other crimes like being accused of stealing art supplies while attending the school. So they wouldn't let her register for the last term. And some of the publications that go back and look at her legacies, that some of the issues that she had and the challenges that she had while she was there and her reason for leaving the school, those parts are absences and kind of skipped over. So it's really interesting to think about the things that she herself chose to leave out of her story when she told it herself and also the things that were absent when other people were telling her story. And of course, that depends on a source and how much room there is in a source for a thing. But, you know, it's interesting. And she was so she was forced to leave Oberlin before she got her degree. And she decided to move on and pursue art. So she went to Boston in 1864. Keeps wrote a letter of introduction for her to William Lloyd Garrison, who was an abolitionist and a journalist who people might be familiar with. It's a pretty big name. And he was able to connect her with sculptors and writers. And so she began working under Edward A. Brackett, who was also an artist. She learned modeling and casting, but they later parted ways for some unknown reason. There, There seemed to have been some sort of conflict there, but that relationship didn't last really long. But she continued to create art, and in 1863, she created a plaster medallion of abolitionist John Brown, and the next year, she also created a marble bust of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. She sold photographs and plaster casts of the bust, which those plaster casts she sold at $15 each. And she also made busts of the characters in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha. But, you know, after a while, travel is a a part of her history. Um, Not long after she was able to apply for a passport because of all the funds that she was getting from her work and take a trip to Italy. So she moved to Italy. And as many artists did at the time, there was a huge community of expat artists um, and sculptors who lived in Italy. But 
In a New York Times article in 1878, she said, quote, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. The land of liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. There were a lot of articles written about her in those abolitionist papers, which she was also able to be in because of the connections that she did have. She did interviews with people and had articles written by about her by people like Elizabeth Peabody and Lydia Maria Child, all these people who were involved in this press and activist circle in the area. And as author Kristen Pye Buick puts it in her book that she wrote about Lewis called Child of the Fire, she said, quote, Lewis's image was reshaped largely by the white women who wrote her into existence, which is something that, I mean, we, I think we've spoken about before on the show when we do female first. It's just like, these are, we have to consider, consider the source. Lewis and Lydia Marie Child, who I just mentioned, were at odds a lot of the time. Child would suggest ideas to Lewis as to how she should run her career because Lewis, she was determined and she believed clearly believed in her work. She wouldn't always wait for commissions for her work. She would do things like make something and then send it to the person that she dedicated it to and then get them to find a buyer if they didn't buy it. There was a lot of back and forth in the relationship between the two of them. And I've found in the comments about her as well, but also in this relationship, there were lots of patronizing attitudes directed at Edmonia that she should be uplifted just because she was mixed race. Um, And at the same time, there was this idea like, oh, wow, look at what she's doing. She's a mixed race artist who is creating these sculptors. So she's worthy of being talked about just because of her race. And this is the thing that exoticizes her as an artist without just viewing the art itself for its own qualities and its own merits. But at the same time that was happening, she was also demeaned and infantilized because of her race. For instance, Child didn't think that she was as talented as others portrayed her. And she thought she was irresponsible when it came to money But like, what would somebody expect since she was Black and Native American? Like, of course she had those qualities of being irresponsible. She didn't learn these things. She didn't grow up with this kind of civilization. So it is definitely a lot of nuance in it where it's like, yes, it's valid to say that she shouldn't be uplifted just because of her race. You know, we have to actually look at the qualities of her work. But (laughs) of course, wrapped up into all those things were the complexities of the way that people spoke about Black people and spoke about Native American people at the time. So either way, she spent a lot of time in Italy, spending time in Florence and Rome, and she kept on creating art. It was said that when she went to Florence, when she she first got there, she went to Florence and she was set up to stay with an American family, but they didn't let her in. So immediately from her coming from the United States and getting to Europe, you know, she was already meeting brick walls, essentially. Yeah, so she did meet artists while she was there um, that she was connected to, like Hiram Powers and Thomas Ball and other expats who were in the country. And 
She would do busts and sculptures in the neoclassical style. She would do works after famous classical and Renaissance sculptures and then sell them to tourists in Rome. And her work centered around historical, social, racial, religious, and literary themes. Those are typically what her works would focus on. And most of her work was created between 1866 and 76, but she did she did quite a few pieces over the course of her life. Although all of those no longer exist. Like we don't have visual record of a lot of those and they don't, they aren't known to be anywhere in life as well. <laughs> I feel like I took a really roundabout way of saying that. I know. So did, wait, so did they get destroyed or just disappeared from record or, or do they know what happened? No, it's not known what happened with a lot of her work. It's just gone. And we're, we'll wow. get to a story later about one of her biggest pieces that she did about Cleopatra that had this really circuitous route to being refound in recent years. Mm-hmm. Teaser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She carved her own marble when she was in Italy, which wasn't a thing that um, there were a lot of artists who didn't do that. They would get Italian artists, local Italian artisans to do the actual carving of the marble. And what they would do is create the designs and the plaster works. And then the artisans in the area would carve the marble. But she carved her own marble and... Like I said, you can go through and see some of her works, Like, but some of the notable ones, for instance, one was 1867's Forever Free, which was a sculpture of two freed enslaved people who were depicted like upon receiving the news of emancipation. But she was Catholic. It's not clear when she became Catholic. There's a good chance that she was Catholic back to childhood, but a lot of her work was influenced by her Catholicism. For instance, there was a Black couple who commissioned her to do a sculpture called Virgin at the Cross for a Grave. They didn't like it. <laughs> and, and, and what happened was they paid her a few installments of, I think it was the four installments that they were supposed to pay her in. But they, they paid the third one. They got it. They didn't like it. They didn't want to pay her the fourth part. And she went to court, won the case, and got some of the money that she asked for in the settlement. Was this... In Italy? She, she did it in Italy, but the couple was from the United States. She would also go to Catholic fairs and she would sell works to people at Catholic churches. And well, she would sell works to the Catholic churches and also the church members. And Pope Pius IX is said to have visited her studio in Rome. But she did go back to the U.S. from time to time um, doing some marketing for her work. And when she visited Chicago in the 1870s, she sat for a series of pictures. And there are other photos outside of that sitting as well of her. But um, it's really nice to go look at the pictures and just stare at them for a minute. I don't know if I'm weird for doing things like that, but it's nice when you actually have photos of people and actually and also as many photos as there are of her. Yeah, so I recommend doing that. You can find them online. But yeah, so the work that I teased earlier was the death of Cleopatra. That's another notable work of hers. She was invited to participate in the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. 
The event was held to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It was all this like hurrah around the event. There were exhibits for technology and art. And for the event, Lewis made the this really big sculpture, The Death of Cleopatra. <laughs> and in it, the Egyptian queen Cleopatra is portrayed slumped, like laid back in her throne, dead after letting a snake bite her as the story goes. But it was different than other neoclassical sculptures of Cleopatra at the time, which more so held Cleopatra in a different light, romanticized her a little bit more, put her up on a pedestal, you know, versus being slumped in a chair. Mm -hmm. And the sculpture was praised critically, and it was a popular piece among the other sculptures that were within that exhibition. But it wasn't sold at the exposition. It was exhibited in Chicago not that long afterwards, then it was put in storage. Then it was displayed in a saloon. Then it was acquired by John Condon, who was a racetrack owner, who put it on top of the grave of his horse named Cleopatra. <laughs> it tracks. Um, Condon put in the property's deed that it was never to be moved. But as things go, development happened. And um, in the 1970s, I think it went to a storage yard. And then a Boy Scout troop painted it after finding it outside. So they know not what they did, I'm sure, <laughs> you know. Oh, the, dear. <laughs> but it wasn't great for the sculpture itself. It had yeah. already been outside for so long that you can only imagine what the damage looked like before. I don't know. I didn't actually, I don't know if there were pictures of it before it was restored or not, but that, those would be really interesting to see. But in 1985, um, a member of the Historical Society of Forest Park, which is a suburb outside of Chicago, acquired the sculpture. Lewis was then identified as a sculptor who did it. And in 19, by 1994, it was in the Smithsonian's permanent collection. Um, so there were a lot of different people who had their hands in it. Obviously, this was a very fortunate event because things don't always get found and attributed to the people who they belong to, especially if they've just been sitting for so long. They don't they get destroyed so this is one of those cases, Samantha, you act so like those works were destroyed or we just don't know what happened to them. This could have been one of those things where like we didn't know what happened to them or it was destroyed. It was, you know, in the whole process of it being outside and in the elements for so long. But it wasn't because of the work of a bunch of people like art historian Marilyn Richardson, bibliographer Dorothy Porter Wesley and the curator George Gurney, like helped along the way to get it identified, restored and saved. But this is like this is one of the really notable works in her in her history, even though she created a lot. But beyond her Egyptian subjects, Catholic subjects and the anti-slavery ones, she also did people portraits and busts of people who were her patrons and notable people like President Ulysses Grant, who sat for her. People like Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, who even met and hung out with her. And then after that visit, she created the bust. Yeah, so it was a lively <laughs> career <laughs> where she met with so many different people who were also notable in their time. So she had a lot of contemporary notability and uh, success, like also in, a, in the way of selling her work, but also in the acclaim, so popular as well as critical. But by the 1880s, demand for her work wasn't as high as it was previously. And... By 1898, she lived in France. In 1901, she was in London. And 
while she was in Europe, people did support her financially and by connecting her with other people and sending people to her studio. But she died in London in 1907. And in her will, she she called herself a spinster and a sculptor. But yeah, she was buried in an unmarked grave at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery. So after this long life with this legacy that was marked in its own time, she was still buried in an unmarked grave. But a historian in town where she was born did set up a fundraiser to create a marker for her for her grave, which she only got about five years ago. So not that, not long ago at all, but fortunately people are still invested in making sure that her history is known and finding out more about her. So a lot of her work is still on view in places like Boston, D.C., and Alabama. But then there's a lot that we don't have anymore. But, you know, you can still go see it in person. So that is that is a good thing, you know, that there's it's so accessible in person and also online. Yes. Yes, there's some really, really amazing pictures online. And that is quite, quite the story. Very well-traveled person. Um, and kind of, yeah, connecting to all these people from the time. And to call yourself a spinster in your will. <laughs> to call yourself a spinster, that sounds like a story. It does, doesn't <laughs> it? And I'm glad that, I mean, it's a shame that it was an unmarked grave in the first place. But I'm glad right. that <laughs> people were dedicated and determined to mm-hmm. change that, even though it was so recent. So I'm guessing someone was able to keep up with her grave knowing where she was the entire time. Because that's a long space of time to have mm-hmm. an unmarked grave to be like, hey, and this is her headstone. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, for sure. It had to be tracked down, which I think is some of the work that the historian I mentioned earlier, Marilyn Richardson, did. Yeah, but it's one of those things that clearly has to have a lot of work put into it because it's not that easy to find, especially it being in London. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Like the level of the travel in itself, but in my head, so that Cleopatra marble statue was mm-hmm. over 3,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing she did it there in Philadelphia is what I'm imagining. Is that correct? That's a good question. I don't know if it was transported from Europe to the United States because I know that it stayed in the United States because they didn't want to transport it back to Europe. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's like all of these works, because when we were talking about even the mm-hmm. piece that they did that they didn't like, that the couple didn't like in the U.S., all of this back and forth travel. Mm-hmm. Like she was noted to be that good that people were willing to commission from overseas during a time where yeah. exporting things was not an easy feat. True, yeah. A lot of her stuff she did send back overseas. Right. Her popularity, her talent, and that traveled in such a way. And yeah, it, is, it feels like a slap in the face to have her placed in an unmarked grave when mm-hmm. she was so well-liked and so well-known that they were willing to do this for her work. Mm-hmm. But yet. And still. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, like, I'm just trying to imagine the practicality. Maybe I'm just too literal. Well, I'm like, wow, who has the money to do this? Who has the money to go back and forth <laughs> overseas for a marble sculpture? Which I'm sure took her a lot of time, but yet she still has a lot of pieces, once again. Because yeah. we know so much has been destroyed, but yeah, there's still evidence of other work out there. Yeah. I desperately want to see, as tragic as it is, the Boy Scouts paint job of this <laughs> statue. I'm glad it was restored, but 
I've got to admit, there's a part of me that's like, I want to see this. Surely there's a picture of that. I, yeah. I, yeah, that's it. I wonder if the job that they did was like, trying to be conservationist, like if they were if they were painting yeah. it white or if they were trying to be more decorative right. and paint it colors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now that I yeah, think about the statue delicious. subject in general, I'm like, this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> painted that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out this conversation of like, this makes sense. Instead of just mm-hmm. cleaning it off or washing it off, which I've seen them do, like keeping headstones clean, historical mm-hmm. sites clean, to actually paint it, like who... Gave them permission to do this. And I understand it's for a horse. But obviously, this person, whoever did this, really loved this horse enough to get this, again, 3,000-pound statue <laughs> to be its headstone. Like, yeah. I, I'm i very shocked and I have a lot of questions. I have yeah. a lot of questions. Yeah. What, what did the <laughs> transport job from wherever else it was look like that? Because I think that was still in the Chicago area. So mm-hmm. it didn't have to move far to get from the place it was before to... The, the the place where the horse was, the horse's grave was, but it still had to be, be transported in some way. So it's like you got to, yeah. you did a lot, but it was uh, it's saying something that how drawn he was to, to it, to the Cleopatra. Right. But wow, I mean, what a horse. It had to have been an amazing <laughs> horse. <laughs> what, a horse. That. <laughs> <laughs> what a horse. What a horse. I love it. I, now I think we should all get um, bust of ourselves. Oh, we, I totally want. I I would I I would love that <laughs> one day <laughs> when I can afford it. Get a look, look at our fear. budget. <laughs> <laughs> I'm both scared and excited. <laughs> it's kind of my general view on life, anyway. So <laughs> that's well, about right. But yeah, going back to her accomplishments, it is amazing. Like I said, like I'm, I'm really racking my brain and processing just what she went through, how much she went through, the mm-hmm. continued uh, fight that she had to have, that she had to leave a whole country in order to find peace to work rather mm-hmm. than anything else. And it still took so long to get there. And then being able to do it and then still get notoriety from the place she wasn't welcomed, essentially. And then to this, but it is an amazing life. And honestly, I didn't know too much about her. Like I, I yeah. heard the name in the story. Uh, and yeah, I don't know why my brain has just latched onto everything being a movie, but yeah, this feels like it. I'm sure there is one. Is there one? I don't know. About her life? I don't think so. I feel like it should be epic. Like just her doing these creations is probably a good, at least a 15 minute YouTube of like a, yeah, you know, paced together of what she's doing. There's definitely no biopic. Mm. Hmm. I don't think. I don't hmm. think <laughs> we got the ideas. Uh, well, you got the ideas and we're here for support. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that'd be great. I'm imagining like, you'll see Zess Grant. Like just the image of him sitting there and getting the, the yeah. bust made. There's a lot of very visually interesting, I think. Also a lot to play with if we're thinking about this in dramatization mm, form right. um, mm-hmm. because of how much she embellished and because you already kind of have license to cre- do a lot of creation within her story if you were doing something more dramatized right. and fictionalized because of the own embellishment that she did of her own story. I feel like, right. well, let me not put any project anything onto her, but it's already a part of her story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fictionalization is. I mean, her trial alone from the college 
Mm-hmm. That would be a, like a tense moment. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. But like <laughs> moment of like seeing her go fighting through these cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is a lot more context. For instance, in the book that I mentioned by Kristen Pybuick about her role and her the significance of her being Black and Native American and the right. the Haitian history all, that all of that wrapped up into her story and how she dealt with that as an artist and how how ripe that was for people contemporary people so how ripe that exoticization the draw of that and being able to talk about that in their commentary on her but also in scholarship about her as well just being able to look back at her story and say oh this is this is a part of her story so this identity is this why she did this um, so there's a lot of lot more context, and you can definitely go deeper into that part of her story as well. Yes. Yes, and we always appreciate you bringing these stories to us, Eves, and doing it with such grace and nuance because they are very complex. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We love, we love having you and seeing uh, you in this digital way <laughs> <laughs> at least once a month. Yes. We'll get our sminty budget on some bust (laughs) get commissioned (laughs) in the meantime where can the listeners find you Eves you can find me on many more episodes on this very here podcast um, talking about other female firsts also you can find me online at evesjeffcoat.com or on Instagram at not apologizing on Twitter at evesjeffcoat and other podcasts as well (laughs) (laughs) yes she's out and about online and you should definitely check out all the stuff Eves is doing if you haven't already and thank you once again Eves for joining us if you would like to contact us listeners you can or email stuff at iheartmedia.com you can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I never told you thanks as always to our super producer Christina Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>